0: I'm Tisha Bader and in the news, the continued brutal assault on Ukraine, the plight of masses of refugees and the world's response to the crisis, in particular, that of the state of Israel, which has sent tons of humanitarian aid to Ukraine, has welcomed in masses of refugees. There are a number of Israeli organizations on the ground working tirelessly in and around Ukraine, and most recently, Israel set up a field hospital in Ukraine, the first and only country so far to do so. And yet there are those asking: is this enough? Is more needed or expected from Israel, especially as far as the response from its leaders and their statements to the public about Ukraine and about Russia? Well, to help us answer this question, offering his perspective and experience, we are honored to have former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Michael Oren. Michael served as ambassador from 2009 to 2013. Israel's embassy cites that he was instrumental in securing U.S. support for Israel's defense and upholding Israel's right to security and peace. Michael is also a best-selling author and we thank him so much for joining us here on JBS. Thank you, Michael.
1: Always good to be with you,
0: Tisha. Thank you. So you wrote an article uh, published in The Forward back on March the 1st entitled Our Own History Will Judge Us, Michael Oren, on why Israel must take a stand for Ukraine. And you raise a number of issues, some of which may have changed since you wrote the article. How do you feel now? As of this moment, do you feel that Israel has taken the stand that you want to see or is closer to doing so?
1: It's closer. Let's put it this way. We're not quite there. Um, I've had this position now for, for several weeks since the, uh, the onset of the, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and my strong feeling was that for, uh, political reasons, diplomatic reasons, strategic reasons, and above all, moral Jewish reasons, Israel had to take a different position. Our position was one of neutrality. Um, the explanation of the government was that we needed to be neutral in order to ensure continuation of our, our ability to maneuver in the skies over Syria. Uh, the Iranians are trying to, to trying to transform Syria into a former, a forward military base to be used against Israel. Uh, Russia is basically an occupation of Syria. So in order to strike at Iranian targets in Syria, we have to coordinate very closely with the Russians. Uh, and that required us to be neutral uh, when uh, Mr. Putin decided to invade Ukraine. So that was the principal strategic reasons. Um, there was diplomatic reason. Uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett wanted to uh, serve as a mediator. And the fact of the matter is we have had Uh, an open and close uh, channel uh, with uh, President Putin for many years. During the time when I was in Washington, uh, uh, representatives of the U.S. administration would come to me and ask me, you know, what is Putin thinking? Because we had closer relationship with Putin. And then there are also Jewish reasons. There are 200,000 Jews in Ukraine, 800,000 in Russia. Uh, In Israel, between one out of every seven and one out of every five uh, Israelis speak Russian. Uh, Strong cultural affinity. We have to ensure Israel's ability to continue to operate uh, in Russia, in Ukraine, uh, Israel operates schools, uh, senior citizen homes, uh, and we we fear that that type of, of, uh, of support would not be able to continue if Israel were other than neutral. So that's, I want to give you the, you know, the, the government's explanation, and now I'll tell you why I think it's wrong, um, and still do think it's wrong. Um, one of the reasons has to do with, first of all, why are we so afraid of the Russians in Syria? We've seen that the Russian army is not uh, the juggernaut that everyone seems to think it is. Uh, in Syria, there are all of 4,300 Russian soldiers, uh, several dozen warplanes. Um, the Israeli army is more than twice as large as the British and French armies uh, combined. Uh, I think if anybody has to be afraid of anybody, the Russians should be afraid of us. Um, moreover, um, the Russians don't want the Iranians there either. Uh, the Iranians are in Syria for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to drag Syria into a war with Israel. Uh, Russians don't want that. Hey, the Syrians don't even want that. Uh, So we're actually doing their dirty work. They have no reason to try to interfere uh, with our actions against uh, Iranian targets in Syria. There are the diplomatic reasons. Um, Israel needs its friends in the world, uh, especially on the uh, eve of a possible renewal renewal of an Iranian nuclear deal, which will endanger our security. Uh, We need all the moral capital we can muster uh, we've had some of our prominent friends in the United States. Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina, has come out and criticized us quite harshly for being neutral. Um, and we're going to need Lindsey. We're going to need other friends in, in Congress uh, and throughout the American media. Um, you know, the image of an Israeli prime minister being the only Western leader to sit and shake hands with Vladimir Putin, who's regarded as a war criminal, is not the picture we want to be shown around the world. Um, and we want to be uh, We want to be with the good guys. We don't be with the bad guys. Uh, and that's that's a problem.
0: Well, I, I want to ask awesome, you
1: about, yeah, go ahead. Please. The last thing is the Jewish issue. Um, we are not like any other state. We are the Jewish and democratic state of Israel. And as a Jewish democratic state, we cannot morally sit by and be neutral while a, while a, federal, a fellow democracy is fighting for its freedom with Molotov cocktails and small arms, uh, a resistance led by a proud Zionist Jew. Uh, how do we remain neutral in the face of that? And so, yes, I have taken on the government's position and been highly critical.
0: So I'm wondering about your use of the word neutrality because Israel has done a number of things. Um, For instance, voting in favor of the UN resolution um, at the end of March to condemn Russia or to ask Russia to halt uh, its attack on Ukraine. That's number one. And I'm not sure about the use of the word neutral as far as Certainly statements by foreign minister Yair Lapid has come out and named Russia specifically by name, called out Russia, said that the killings in Bucha were war crimes. Naftali Bennett, who you mentioned earlier, slightly less apt, prone to name Russia. Uh, Specifically, he has not said the names Russia or Putin. However, he has condemned the invasion of Ukraine. He has said that Israel stands with the people of Ukraine. He has called the killings in Bucha horrific um so i'm wondering as far as israel's point of view well first of all do you still feel that those actions qualify israel as being neutral when it is when it has come out strongly um, in support of ukraine and condemning the the atrocities or has well, that changed it, at all
1: it has changed I mean, it has changed since the, since you know since now over three weeks ago when the when the war began um the israeli position has changed and yes we have come out and condemned Uh, the invasion more unequivocally um, from uh, not voting for a security council uh, condemnation of Russia. We proceeded to to join a General Assembly condemnation of of Russia. And yes, we have condemned the the war crimes um, and we've sent a lot of humanitarian aid, but we have not, we have not, Tisha, we have not joined in any of the sanctions against Russia. Uh, We have not sent um, non-offensive uh, middle, military equipment, uh, and we've been asked several times to send uh, helmets and ceramic flak jackets. Uh, we have not done that. Um, and I think by doing that, I think we would send a, I think, the proper message uh, to our friends. Um, we would be able to look ourselves in the mirror, which I think that uh, Vladimir Zelensky is holding up in front of us and, and not see in that image a country which is is frightened and, and self-centered.
0: Interesting, you mentioned the flak jackets. I did read a report this morning, and you probably know more about this than I do, that the foreign ministry, Israel's foreign ministry said it is once again considering sending flak jackets and such defensive, as you mentioned, it's for some reason it counts as military aid, but we all know it is defensive. You put on a flak jacket, you can't hurt anyone with it. You're protecting yourself. So do you think that, that there's a chance that Israel might now approve um, such supplies to Ukraine?
1: I think so. I do. Uh, I just spoke to a friend who returned from a humanitarian mission, an Israeli mission in in Ukraine. He says that the the drivers who are driving, you know, vital supplies, medical supplies, are begging Israel for flak jackets and helmets. Um, I don't know how morally we can withhold that.
0: The other question is, it seems to me that even if Bennett is not naming Putin by name, it's clear when he condemns what's happening in Ukraine that that's against Russia, right? So, What is really the difference in perhaps in Bennett's mind or in Russia's mind? Isn't it obvious what Israel's position is and what is the thought that like, oh, well, this would be too much if we do X, it will be too blatant that we're against Russia. Like, isn't it already clear that Israel is condemning the atrocities? We're
1: condemning in words. The question is whether we're Mm -hmm. condemning in actions. And, um, and that, that, that our friends want to see that we're condemning inaction. Um, and it, it's not an easy policy, don't get me wrong. Um, there is a, among a certain segment of the Israeli population, uh, how should I put this, no deep love for Ukraine. Um, I've been stopped in the street by, by Israelis who say, how can you call for us to support Ukraine? This is the most anti-Semitic country in history uh, with a vast amount of Jewish blood on its hands, collaborating with the Nazis, um, massacring us in the 17th century. Um, I mean, my own family fled Ukraine to the United States. They fled the pogroms. And my, my grandparents told me about, about the pogroms in Ukraine. They remembered them as children. So yes, it, it, it's um, in my, shortly after completing my service in the Israeli army, I was sent to work underground uh, with, the Zionist, uh, with the Zionist refuseniks uh, in, in the Ukraine. And I encountered Ukrainian anti-Semitism up front. Uh, the Ukrainian KGB was viciously uh, anti-Semitic, viciously anti-Semitic. So I, I saw it up front, and so it's not, a, I, I say this um, not with alacrity, not with, with, not with any, any any ease. Still, Ukraine has changed. And again, it is a fellow democracy. Uh, it is fighting for its freedom. Um, it is suffering massacres. Uh, this resistance is being led, again, by a proud um, Zionist Jew. He once, uh, Mr. Blensky, seriously considered moving to Israel in the early 1990s. Um, and I just think it—we uh, have to be able to look ourselves in the in in the face and that mirror that that Ukraine is holding up to us.
0: But I think you would agree. You mentioned people perhaps not being supportive in Israel. I think from what I've heard and seen, the majority of Israelis. Are strongly supportive of the people of Ukraine sending over their own uh, coats and supplies and doing what they can. We have um, we had um, Dr. Dorit Nitsan on recently talking about the incredible uh, volunteer efforts of the, of medical professionals in Ukraine who are just leaving, picking up their lives and going there to do whatever they can. I think that reflects the majority um, of the people of Israel certainly. The Also, I want to just mention, I read this today as well, that the foreign ministry released a statement, uh, Lapid and Defense Minister Benny Gantz met with about 80 ambassadors today for a press briefing, and again, this is a quote, emphasized Israel's condemnation of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That is, I think, over the last couple of days, that has become more of what we're hearing out of the Israeli government.
1: It's excellent. It's very good. It's not enough.
0: It's not enough. Okay, okay. Uh, Gilad Kariv indeed, indeed, actually
1: station, not just
0: words. No, I understand. And, and speaking of deeds, uh, Knesset member Gilad Kariv, who is a Reform rabbi as well as serving in the Knesset, uh, called for Israel to join in imposing sanctions. Is that a, a realistic? Like, is, is is Israel even in a position where such um, a measure? What would that look like if Israel decided to join the countries imposing sanctions on Russia?
1: Well, it could be anything it has to do with the uh, banking trans- transactions. Um, it could have to do with, uh, you know, purchasing the Russian wheat um, or Russian energy. Um, it could fake many faces. We don't have to join all the sanctions, but I would recommend that we join some.
0: Let me ask you this. So if Bennett is really eyeing the role of mediator, let's say that this is actually a real possibility that Israel could serve as a mediator between Russia and Ukraine. In order for that to happen, as you mentioned, it it would be important, as you mentioned in your own experience um, serving as ambassador, to maintain somewhat warm relations or civil relations between Russia and Ukraine and Israel, in order for Israel to serve in that role of mediator. So how do we, how does Israel hold on to that possibility, which would be obviously incredibly important if Israel could help end this horrific war? And at the same time, take some actions that you're asking for it to take. Can those two things coexist?
1: So, First of all, I don't know how realistic it is. And I actually don't know how actually beneficial it will be for Israel in the long run uh, to be a mediator. First of all, the chances of successfully mediating at this stage are are negligible. Uh, But much bigger actors are are stepping in. Uh, France, uh, the actual negotiations are taking place in Turkey. Um, and it's nice that, that uh, the prime minister has spoken personally with, uh, with Putin, that he's had some some phone calls. But um, uh, at this point, I don't see Israel playing that mediation role. Moreover, we are now experiencing a wave of terrorist attacks um, and the prime minister uh, cannot devote his time to another conflict. Uh, Israelis are being massacred in the streets. Um, and as of this morning, it's not certain that the prime minister even has a government um so he's got to have his hands completely full with other things and not dealing with the, with, the, with this crisis even if it, all things uh, were changed if we weren't experiencing a wave of terror if we weren't experiencing political upheaval at home uh, you have to ask yourself okay what are the price what price would israel pay would it be would it would it, would it, would it justify even the possibility that, that, that israel could succeed as a mediator because the price again is going to be support from our friends at a time when we really need it uh, to counter the Iran nuclear threat. Um, um, We have to think about American Jews who I'm sure are are passionate in their support of Ukraine and then looking at Israel and saying, I I get emails all the time saying, how could you you do this constantly do this? How can you be neutral? Um, So at a time when we have to really think about how we can strengthen our ties uh, with the American Jewish community. Uh, our neutrality, um, or e- indeed, if, if not in word, um, could put additional strains on our relationship with American Jewry.
0: As far as just the world response, let's just talk for a moment about the United States. Do you think the US is doing enough in, this co- in this responding to this?
1: I think America is doing what it can, put it that way. I think that the, the, the American people will not support military intervention. Um, and that's, uh, that's just the fact. Uh, Mr. Putin knows that. And he knows, even, even if his army hasn't performed up to the standards that he had hoped, he knows he has an infinite timeline. Um, and because uh, there's no military uh, option on the other side. So he can continue to basically beat the Ukrainians down. I think one of the interesting barometers to watch, today is not what's happening on the battlefield, but what's happening in the negotiations and which side is, which side is conceding what to, wit, to whom. And right now, Zelensky's doing all the concessions. And that's telling you about something that's really happening on the battlefield, in spite of the great heroism of the uh, Iraq, the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian people. Um, and because I think that, that he knows that time is not on his side, the Russians should just keep pounding and keep pounding because no one's really going to stop them. There's a question about the efficacy of the sanctions. Um, you know, the ruble has bounced back. Um, Putin's popularity is through the roof within Russia. Um, he has a tremendous tailwind from China and from India, uh, which are supporting him uh, to various degrees. Um, I think that uh, Putin, all things considered, feels that time is on his side against us. Can the United States do more? Not really. Not really.
0: A complex situation, an awful situation. As you said, we pray for peace and we pray for this to be resolved as quickly as possible. Michael, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise with us and your unique perspective here on JBS. We appreciate it tremendously.
1: And let me wish you and your viewers um, a holiday of freedom, a holiday of liberation to everybody. A happy one.
0: Amen. With the upcoming Passover holiday, we wish the same to you and yours as well. Thank you so much. Take care. Be well. Well, among the leading Jewish organizations working tirelessly to do What it can to help is the Jewish Federations of North America. And we are so fortunate to have CEO of the JFNA, Eric Fingerhut, joining us here on JBS to talk about the Ukraine relief efforts, including the recent aid mission he led to the Ukraine border and the JFNA's fundraising campaign that has raised over $40 million in aid for Ukraine. Before joining the Jewish Federations, which represents 146 independent federations and a network of 300 smaller communities across North America, Eric served as the President and CEO of Hillel International. Eric, thank you so much for joining us here on JBS.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's a real honor.
0: Thank you. I understand you're in Israel at the moment. That's where we're catching you.
2: I am. Greetings from Yerushalayim. It's wonderful. Wonderful to talk to you from, from Israel.
0: Very nice. Thank you. So talk about this mission uh, that you recently led. It was on the Polish border with Ukraine. You're one of the first uh, groups to actually go to that area. What, what was that experience like?
2: So, uh, Tisha, it, it's really moving. First of all, we've actually, uh, as of this week now, had four different uh, uh groups that have gone representing now probably 50 or 60 of our 146 Federation communities. Uh, I personally have been uh, to the border twice and uh, uh, and have been in Warsaw uh, three times since the war broke out. Um, It's really a moving experience in two ways. First, uh, as has been widely reported, the bulk of the refugees coming across are women and children, because uh, Ukraine, the the men, the the, the men of fighting age, uh, are being uh, are not allowed to leave, and whether they're voluntarily fighting or whether they're being detained, not allowed to leave. So, uh, you know, many many mothers and children are leaving their husbands and their fathers behind, and then of course there's elderly, you know, those who are are beyond fighting age, but uh, who very much need lots of assistance. So. It's it's really moving to see the large number, particularly large number of children, uh, who, you know, are really uh, confused. I mean that this isn't something that was built. You know that they've been planning for for months and years. This was something that just all of a sudden they're you know they were in school one day and the next day they're uh, the next day they're being um, you know they're refugees. Um, so that was one thing. The second is it is impressive the relief efforts. Of course, I'm enormously proud of the Jewish relief efforts. Our primary uh, partners in that through the Jewish federations are the joint, JDC, uh, which does the humanitarian relief, uh, you know, food and medicine and shelter, and, uh, and uh, the Jewish uh, Agency which uh, for Israel, which does rescue, uh, and then Aliyah is bringing people to Israel. Um, they are enormously impressive in the work that they're doing on the ground. Uh, but as well, many other organizations, you know, you mentioned I was the head of Hillel and there's Hillels uh, in uh, all around the region that are, that are helping uh, take care of the, turn, turn the, the Hill and Warsaw turned themselves into a childcare place, you know, to take, help take care of the kids. Uh, the uh, Chabad is very, very active and, uh, and uh, Moishe House and the JCCs and a number of other really impressive Uh, really impressive efforts, and and also broadly, the global efforts. There's organizations from all over the world uh, that are there, uh, and there's a lot of help for people once they make it across the border.
0: And I know you've been strongly advocating, Eric, for countries to take in these refugees. Tell us about those efforts and what you think people really need to know. You know, we see things on the news. We see photographs and images. You were there in person. Did you speak to any of the refugees? What was the, what did you yeah. feel? What was sort of their state of mind? And what do you want people to really know about how dire this situation is?
2: Well, uh, certainly, you know, I'm a citizen of the United States um, and, uh, uh, and our uh, federations are located both in the U.S. and Canada. And uh, we have been uh, representing the Jewish community, strong advocates for our countries to accept uh, you know, accept as many refugees as we possibly can. Uh, the the countries in Europe have actually been quite good so far about allowing people to stay uh, in the countries. I believe they've extended, you know, normal typical visitor visas to eight. They told me that up to eighteen months they can stay while they're figuring out where they want to go permanently. The the answer to your question about what the mood is, uh, first of all, you have millions of refugees, and, and again, I think it's important for uh, this audience to know that uh, while obviously there's a large number of Jewish refugees, the Ukrainian Jewish community was one of the larger Jewish communities in the world. Uh, we estimate about 200,000. Of course, they all haven't left, um, but but a large number have. Uh, but but we're talking a tiny percentage ultimately of the millions of over four million refugees that have left uh, that have left Ukraine to the state. And you know this is not a crisis it's a crisis that's impacting Jews, but it's not a crisis directed at Jews, you know, unlike unlike so many other experiences of our of our history. And so we have the ability to look broadly at how we can also be of help uh, to, uh, you know, the broader community uh, to take our Jewish values of being or being a light to the nations and helping as many as we possibly can. Um, and what you see when you're in the major cities surrounding the Ukrainian border, obviously I spent a lot of time in Warsaw, but the same thing is true in Budapest and, and in Romania and in Moldova, um, is huge numbers, again, of women and children. They're staying in, in uh, hotels and in people's homes and in, you know, uh, dormitories that have been turned into shelters. They're being fed. They're being clothed. There's an extraordinary outpouring of, of charity in that regard. Um, but. What what you the predominant uh, message we hear from people is they're not yet ready to move on. They want to stay as close as they can to Ukraine for the reason that I mentioned already, which is that you know they they want to reunite their families um, and and many you know they hope they'll go back that they'll you know that the war will end and that their homes and businesses will be intact. Many are starting to realize that's not the case. But even if they decide to permanently leave Ukraine. They wanna do it as a family uh, unit as much as possible. So uh, I think we're gonna see a huge refugee and humanitarian need in those border countries and in Europe generally for quite a few months. And then we'll start to see, uh, you know, more and more deciding what their final destinations are. I think we will see more Ukrainians coming to North America uh, as the months go on. Uh, And of course uh, the Aliyah numbers in Israel Uh, are you know are still growing so but but there's a a little bit of a delayed reaction as again as I mentioned people this this was unexpected so you know it's one thing to find yourself a refugee out of the blue um, uh, another to make also that decision immediately that you want to permanently leave uh, you know leave your home uh, and become a, a citizen you know build your life in another country of course we're you know we're proud of of Jews who who choose to do that in the state of Israel. Um, that's one of the reasons the state of Israel exists is to, you know, is to bring Jews from anywhere in the world uh, who are unsafe to a safe home that is their home. Uh, I was just today at the Welcome Center for Refugees, Ukrainian refugees in Jerusalem, at the Nefesh B'Nefesh headquarters, where the Ministry of Absorption and other Minist- relevant ministries have set up a, like a one-stop shop where you can go around and get your health card and your employment card and your bank you know authorization all sorts of things and it's moving it's really moving uh you know to 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 see people uh, starting a new life and also to see uh israel look, it's a bureaucracy you can't you can't get around that but but to see the the eagerness with which they're being welcomed
0: Well, Eric, thank you so much for all your efforts and the efforts of the federations having raised tens of millions in dollars. Also, you've set up a volunteer hub uh, together with the organizations you mentioned, the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, Israel Aid, as well as the Jewish Agency, um, giving volunteers somewhere to go, people who want to help in that capacity.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, when we were when we've been talking to those working on the ground, you mentioned, you know, particularly the agencies you mentioned. Uh, they all their staff is is stretched. Um, they all need help. But but when we asked them, they said yes, they need help. But they but they need a particular kind of help. They need people who speak the language, uh, Russian and Ukrainian. Um, they need people with skills that are needed on the ground: social work, clinical skills, you know, childcare. Uh, education, those kinds of skills, and they also need people who can commit to a little bit of a period of time. You know, we—it's not helpful that people come for 24 hours or 36 hours. So we created a volunteer hub where we're matching uh, volunteers who meet those criteria to, um, you know, to the needs in the region. And also, of course, we're happy to raise the funds to help support them to go over uh, and uh, and have some spending money, you know, while they're there. Um, and uh, so far, the. You know, the first group is over there, uh, but as word is getting out, I think the volume of, of this will grow. And remember, this is going to be a long crisis, even if the war ended tomorrow. You have rebuilding, you've got an uh, you know, enormous amount of displacement um, uh, and resettlement. So we, we need to we need to realize that uh, you know, we're going to be we're going to be helping for probably uh, a matter of years. This isn't uh, just uh, days and weeks.
0: Well, we thank you for everything Federations has done up to this point, and your continued work in this crisis. Um, we know this is the work that you do every day, and we appreciate it very, very much. And wish you the best uh, going forward.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. And and really, of course, it's the work of 146 Jewish Federations and all the leaders and volunteers that are that are doing this work and. And as you pointed out accurately, and if I can say in my last word, that while we're proud of the response to the emergency, we're able to respond because the federation system is there day in and day out, year in and year out. As I always tell people, you don't, you know, you don't build a fire department when the house is on fire. You build a fire department so that you can be ready to deal with fires. That's what the federation system has done with our global partners and 911 system, and of course in our communities, as you've seen with COVID, you've seen with the response to physical security threats. This is the work of our Jewish Federation system. And I couldn't be more proud to be associated with these wonderful people across 146 Jewish communities.
0: Thank you so much. Eric Fingerhut a CEO of the Jewish Federations of North America. And we thank him for his time and for joining us here on JBS.
2: Thank you so much.
0: And thank you, as always, to our director, Sloan Copeland. Our managing director, Dara Galib, technical manager, Michael Paley, our transmission manager, John McDevitt, and our producer, Carol Lilienthal. And thank you for watching in the news. I'm Tisha Bader. Be well.